Welcome, everybody, to what will be either episode 38 or episode 39 of the podcast. We haven't made up our minds yet. We have another episode we're going to record. Uh, We're not sure on the timing. That will be the airing of Grievances episode. Um, I am, of course, Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here with Bill Rogio, my longtime colleague. Bill, say hi. Hello, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and for this episode, we are pleased to be joined by another guest for you to listen to, so you don't have to listen to me as much. You can listen to Robin Simcox, who is in the UK. Uh, he recently uh, stood up a new outfit in the UK called the Counter-Extremism Group, which we're going to talk about uh, what he intends to do with that group, what their mission is. Um, we're going to get into a little bit of his background. Um, Robin, uh, we've known Robin for a long time. At least I've known Robin. I don't know how long. How long have I known you, Robin? Welcome to the podcast, by the way. Thank you, Tom. Great to be with you. Oh, I would guess... 10 years, maybe, maybe a little, little less, but something in that ballpark. And so I always, I always divide people in our field in my mind into two groups. One is the sort of reasonable analysis or reasonable analysts uh, who are out there who just sort of want to get it right. And then there's the disconnect the dots crowd, which I, I lament that crowd constantly on this podcast, as our listeners know. And you are firmly not in the disconnect the dots crowd. So, uh, you know, welcome to the podcast on that basis alone. Uh, that's the that's the toughest test in the world to pass the Tom disconnect the dots one. So as long as I've got that, I think we're going to be all good. Well, you know, Robin, actually, it isn't that tough to pass because if you just do basic sort of thinking and and, and logic, you know, you, you basically you're not in the disconnect the dots crowd. It's all these pseudo intellectual torturous arguments you have to counter with people trying to play disconnect the dots for the years. But uh, you know, that's sort of my own hang up, I guess, uh, on all this. But Robin, so I've known yeah, I've known you for at least a decade, probably more. Um, Let's let's get into this a little bit. Let's talk to listeners a little, a little bit about your recent work. We're going to pub- this podcast is going to come out along with an analysis that you're going to publish at Long War Journal of sort of recent events in Europe um, in terms of Islamist or jihadist terrorist attacks and plots um, and why that's still important. We're going to talk about that. Um, but let's talk at first. And, and the reason why that's important, folks, is because, yes, we're living in the coronavirus era, the era of the pandemic. That should be on the top of everybody's mind. That is the most important thing. You know, we see these statistics every day that you know more people die from coronavirus-related um, illnesses than uh, you know basically were killed on 9/11. Um, you know, it, it certainly is taking on a massive death toll here across the West, and it's understandable that that is first and foremost on everyone's mind. But that doesn't mean that jihad is going to go away. It doesn't mean that Islamism is going to go away. These are going to still be issues that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, in one fashion or another, and, and Robin is a great guest for us to have to talk about that uh, from the European and particularly the British perspective. But let's talk a little bit about, uh, Robin, your background first. Where are you from originally? This is a question I always like to ask everybody. So I'm from uh, Lincolnshire, a county in the UK. It's a, I'm from an extraordinarily rural part of, of the UK originally. I always say where I grew up, there was a, there was a church and a post box. There wasn't even a post office. There was no shop. There was no local school. It was very, very isolated part of the part of the country. So, growing up like that, I guess you either have two options, right? You're either going to become a a total uh, somebody who is addicted to living in a rural life and a kind of isolated world, or you're going to become a big city person. And I ended up becoming a big city person. So I, as soon as I could leave Lincolnshire um, as lovely place as it was to grow up. I I was ready to to hit the city. So I um I studied in a, a university called Leeds in Northern England and then moved to London 
for my master's, and I did my master's in U.S. foreign policy. And um, I was lucky enough at the time to have a, a tutor. This was in 2006. He was a, a tutor that um, was writing a book that, that subsequently came out called um, After Bush, The Case for Continuity in U.S. Foreign Policy which in the UK in 2006, seven was like the most contrarian thing I think any <laughs> academic could ever say. And yeah, so that's, pretty, was, that's pretty out there. I can't, I can't imagine how that went over. It was, yeah. it was uh, he was not the, yeah, he wasn't the most popular academic, but it was a really good exposure to, um, I think, some contrarian thought. And, and it, was, it, was quite a, it was quite a bold and brave argument to, to make at that time, especially. And so I think there's a lot of, it, it was a good, it was a good grounding in, in, I mean, and I think you can, obviously the legacy of, of Bush and, and the rest of his foreign policy, I think is a, is obviously an ongoing live debate. But I understand still, I understand where people come from on it, but it was a, um, it was a good grounding for me in, in being in, in a kind of, in showing that sometimes you've got to take on the unpopular um, and tricky arguments if you want to make headway in key areas. And I think there's some actually some, some utility in that when, when it comes to our work on jihadism and, and terrorism and Islamism, because often the safest thing to say and the one that's going to get you uh, maybe the most Twitter followers or the next government contract isn't necessarily the right thing to do. And so I think, there was, I think it was a, a kind of useful grounding for me in that regard. I think that's why we're sort of kindred spirits. What you just said right there, you're willing to go against the herd on all this stuff, uh, which is exactly where Bill and I, of course, have been coming from. At the risk of going off on a tangent, by the way, and I'm just going to make this brief. So according to my family genealogy, actually, Gilbert Jocelyn was a general in the uh, the, ten, the events of 1066 uh, under William the Conqueror and actually was awarded property in Lincolnshire. Uh, and that's where the family lived, the Jocelyn family lived for a time. Now, one of my ancestors actually went on to become mayor of London, uh, Ralph Jocelyn. I think it was in the 16th century, I think, if I'm recalling correctly. And then eventually in the uh, 1635, the Jocelyn family, my ancestors moved to the U.S., what became the U.S., of course. At that time was hardly the U.S. Um, so there's a little bit of a familial roots there in your rural uh, you know, backwater of Lincolnshire that I sort of, I guess I could share going back hundreds of years here. Uh, now, of course, I'm an American mutt, so I've got – that's one one of my bloodlines, but I've got a bunch of other bloodlines as well. But in any event, sort of interesting how things work, right? My family was from the same part of the world that your family family's from at one point in time. Yeah, I mean, that's – and that's interesting. We were talking earlier about how, how long we've known each other. I had no idea you had roots in Lincolnshire. To be honest, not many people – Lincolnshire is not one of those areas of the country as well that certainly, you know, I just spent uh, four years plus living in the States. Not many people, understandably – have heard of Lincolnshire, or if they have, they know it because Margaret Thatcher was from Lincolnshire. She's probably the most recent um, major political figure to have any that would have any crossover in the US that would have any links to Lincolnshire. But now we can add you to the list, Tom. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny the reason the reason no, pretty much the only reason I know anything about it is because of this um, sort of anecdotal history in my genealogy. And of course, I you know I'm doing this from memory. The last time I looked this up was a long time ago, but. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things I've always meant to follow up on, and so I'll have to get your advice on where to go when I do eventually make my way over there. Um, but you, you obviously you, you moved over to D.C. for a while. You're living in Washington now. You're back in the U.K. Um, you know, leading the, the counter extremism group. Um, can you talk talk to us a little bit about what 
your intent is behind this new outfit, what, you know, what you're, what you're driving at and how you, you, you see yourself going forward here. Sure. Yeah. Well, so I was, um, yeah, I did, uh, a stint with the heritage foundation and DC, I spent over four years there. Um, but the opportunity came to stand up the counter extremism group. Um, the thinking behind it was, is that, um, there's obviously a lot of institutes in, and, and the UK doesn't have as much of a thriving think tank scene as the US. There's just not as many. I mean, it's probably the most thriving scene in, in Europe, but it's nothing compared to say, to say Washington. Um, but the opportunity came to set this up and, and there isn't any think tanks really in the UK specifically only dealing with counter extremism and counter terrorism policy. Um, there are obviously organizations that do it, but they'll also deal with other aspects of domestic policy or they'll be dealing with um, foreign policy as well. And we had the opportunity to set something up that was looking very specifically at counter-extremism policy in the UK. So um, we think, and, and I've, I've hired a, obviously a small staff um, and, and Tom very generously agreed to join as, as advisor as well, um, and, and our, our focus is we've got good contacts in at various level um, within the government, and we have a decent idea of the kind of work that is being done by the current government in the counter-extremism field. Um, and we think we're uniquely placed to be able to have an input on that. Um, so there's a lot of this deals with the, the kind of the non-violent extremism uh, area and I suppose in the in the US it's it's uh, the debate around groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, we deal with elements of that, and we think that we think there's a a opportunity, there's a crossroads in the UK really, where there is uncertainty over what the government is going to do next. There's, they've drifted really for years, and so we recognise that there's an opportunity to inject a bit of um, a bit of momentum again behind the the um, the counter extremism agenda, taking on some of the ideas that animates uh, Islamists and Islamist groups that um, that not just pose a. This is, I mean, obviously, you've got the terrorist groups that, that pose a threat to national security. In some ways, that's the kind of easiest thing. That's, it's a very low common domin- lowest common denominator thing, um, and I kind of feel like anyone really can do that. What I'm interested in us doing is taking on the really tricky questions like how do you what do you deal with the groups who don't advocate violence but so division grievance push islamist ideas and yet do so legally sometimes even do so on government platforms or with government patronage either through ignorance on the government's part on or because they think that these kind of groups can be co-opted um and used as a kind of firewall against the real bad guys like 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 isis and al-qaeda and so, um, yeah, it's, it's a, we are, we exist to try and ask and then answer the really tricky questions and give, and give government advice on those issues. Well, you've gone right. You anticipated my next question, actually, which is that one of the things that we've sort of come across routinely in our field and this profession is this idea that, you know, you can pit um, sort of one version of extremism against another or one extremist against another sort of a, you know, nonviolent extremist against a violent extremist and somehow come to a, 
you know, a, a better case scenario really for the West or British interests, uh, American interests. And it's always based on these dubious assumptions about extremism, right? I, mean, I don't think you would make, I don't think that some of these people would make the same arguments when it comes to, for example, domestic extremism, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't say, um, you know, we should pit, um, you know, a nonviolent white supremacist against a neo-Nazi inside the U.S. or something like that. And yet when it comes to, and for reason, understandable reasons, which I would agree with, but you, you, but when it comes to jihadism and terrorism, a lot of times we've come across this argument of where Islamist extremists should basically be played off of, um, or I'm sorry, nonviolent, supposedly nonviolent Islamists should be, you know, basically treated as a bulwark against jihadists. And there, there are a lot of reasons why that, that thinking doesn't really follow through as far as we're concerned. But I was wondering how prevalent that is to this day, would you say, inside the UK and sort of your circles and people you know and more prevalent than it should be, considering how absurd it is and how consistently it's failed. Um, I think the, the point you make is is exactly right. I mean, try floating the idea in the US that you should work with the Proud Boys or Richard Spencer in taking people away from the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, people would correctly laugh at you because it's such an absurd notion. With Islamist politics, it's somehow seen as fair game and the kind of evidence of a nuanced and sophisticated strategy. I don't think it is very nuanced. I don't think it's very sophisticated. I think it's it's silly. And it's been proved to have failed very consistently in the UK. Now, I'm I'm of the view that no, it's very tricky to permanently kill off even bad ideas. We see this happening. I mean, we we there is many ways in which you could use this as an example, but but even this idea which in the UK had for a good while been defeated quite quite round, quite conclusively, actually, that there was a rejection in, in the prevent strategy of 2010, um, in, written in 2010, published in 2011. There was a very clear repudiation of the notion that you were going to use extremist groups to help fight against other extremist groups. So that was helpful and the UK was on the right path and on that front. I think there's been drift since in the UK. And I think that you need to, we, one of the reasons we're here, uh, camp extremism group is to, is to try and make sure that battle stays won. I think actually what's interesting is if you see, is you look at what's happening in other parts of Europe and they're going through variations of this at the moment. You look at what Kurtz is saying in Austria, you look at what Macron is saying in France. It's basically the same argument. It's the, we are not going to win this fight. This doesn't get resolved if in perpetuity, the only thing we do is hit the, cro- the nearest crocodile to the boat, stop the latest terrorist plot. Um, if you're going to actually make some headway in the long term, you've got to drain the swamp of, of Islamism as, as an ideology and, and, and the ideas that animate it and the reason that people join Islamist groups in the first place. And that's why you're seeing in France and in Austria, especially in other parts of, of Europe, um, nascently, this idea that it's not just terrorism and violent extremism that needs taking on. They're also talking about Islamist separatism, political Islam. And, um, and, and I think, I hope that, that this, I, this, this absurd notion that you need to work with, uh, one set of extremists to, to undercut the, the ideological messaging of another set of extremists, um, 
I, I hope this idea dies away because it's there's there's no good future in that that line of thinking. Well, you know, the, the other thing we deal with, there's there's sort of that level of thinking. And then you have sort of, you now have in the U.S. in particular, you have a lot of desire for retrenchment, of course, getting away from. And usually when people talk about retrenchment, they're talking about the U.S. military and its allies, including, you know, forces from the U.K. and other European countries that have been, you know, helping in more recent years, helping partner forces or allies sort of contain the jihadists that are disrupted. And of course, you now have sort of an ideological campaign against that, saying that that's you know, basically something that needs to end for various reasons. Now, people who listen to this podcast know that Bill and I are not uncritical uh, in, in sort of cheerleading all that, uh, quite to the contrary. You know, I mean, I think you can make arguments against U.S. involvement in a lot of these theaters in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, there are sort of all sorts of rational critiques. There's nothing ideological about, you know, sort of our take on this. We just say, look, you know, the jihadis, the terrorist organizations, whether it be ISIS or Al-Qaeda or their allies, they continue to exist. They continue to pose some level of threat and there need to be some sort of – we can at least entertain the idea or support some sort of modest effort to disrupt them and keep them at bay. Um, how prevalent would you say it is now within the UK as compared to the US in terms of the sense of – wanting to sort of support retrenchment on all this and sort of get away from dealing with these issues and just sort of move on to something else? Well, it, it, it obviously comes up less here than it does in the, in the U.S. because you are, you are the guys who are doing all the heavy lifting on this. And, and we're there as, as, a, as part of the supporting cast. Um, so the, I, I think there's been, I mean, look, look at the situation in Afghanistan at the moment, right? Like there's no real serious thinking going on about there's no real serious discussions about this in the uk despite our obviously pretty integral role to what's happened in afghanistan um over the last 19 plus years uh i think that the um at the same time because of because of the fact that the uk has been quite consistently attacked and because of the fact that so many of our european neighbors are so regularly attacked by by islamist terrorists there is an urgency um, around the entire issue and what we're going to do about our domestic security that probably isn't quite the same in the US. And, you know, for for happy reasons, really, you've through of had a lot of hard work and various counterterrorism campaigns, um, border security and aviation security and the rest of it. Um, you've made yourselves a, a safer country despite being the the number one target for jihadi groups around the world and so in so the in in the us you've there's probably less there's probably less debate around um terrorism now maybe than there has been and ever since ever been since 9 11 i mean feel free to correct me if i've got that wrong but my sense is that it's probably slipping down the list of areas of concern in the in europe military interventionism overseas is also slipping down the areas of concern but the overall situation with threat from jihadism within europe is i mean it's hard to avoid really because even during covid we've had plenty of plots plenty of attacks that have taken place even during lockdown so it's it it finds its way and terrorism finds its way of getting itself back on the agenda. And, you know, I wouldn't even be surprised if it did in the US. I mean, Obama didn't want to have to deal with terrorism and then ISIS comes. I mean, Bush didn't want to have to, never occurred to him that he'd be dealing with terrorism before 9-11. And I'm sure Biden probably wants to take on more focused on China, 
the pandemic, maybe climate change, you don't get a choice in this as president, right? Yeah, I mean, that's basically where we're coming from is that sort of the enemy gets a vote and that, you know, you can make your arguments of what you think the U.S. should or should not do at any given time. I, You know, again, none of this is ideological for me. It's all about, you know, sort of how do you counter these threats and you can make arguments for or against any number of any number of policies really um you know but a lot of times what we face are people that they read into their their view of jihadist organizations they read into them the policies they desire so you know basically you know i mentioned at the outset jokingly the whole disconnect the dot stuff the reason for that is that basically you know people who you know one of the examples i always use is that this idea that al-qaeda and the islamic maghreb so al-qaeda in the islamic maghreb what you know, according to some people, wasn't really part of Al Qaeda, right? There was that whole disconnected dot stuff on that, and that was driven, as far as we're concerned, by people who said, "Well, basically, we don't want the U.S. to get involved in West Africa militarily, and therefore they can't possibly be part of Al Qaeda." And my view was, I had no desire to send American troops into Mali, and wouldn't recommend that at the time uh, when this argument was happening, going on. But Al Qaeda is on grab, you know, was part of Al Qaeda for various reasons, and now. You know, so now that disconnected dots mentality, though, you know, it basically filters through a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but Bill, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, Robin sort of already is moving over into our next part of this, which is has to do with, you know, what's the current threat inside Europe from jihadists now? What's the current, you know, sort of landscape look like? Where are the plots that we've seen? You know, because as I mentioned at the outset, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, how people are mostly focused on coronavirus and the pandemic. Obviously, that's true. Um, that's obviously true. Um, and for good reasons, but that doesn't mean this threat stream has gone away. So maybe Bill, you want to, you want to take the next segment here, maybe talk to Robin about his recent research. Yeah. Before we get to that, Robin, I just have one question. So one of the problems we've had here is just defining the nature of the, of the enemy that we're facing or enemies that we're facing. Um, you know, Tom and I have argued, and I'm sure you're on board with this, that, you know, 19 years in, we're still we still don't have a good definition of what Al Qaeda is, what the Islamic State is, what their goals are. Um, do you have that same sense with the renewed, um, you know, the invigorated interest in Europe on this subject? Do you have a feeling that people actually get what this threat is now, and you're coming with a common term there in the UK and in um, Europe in general? My sense is that there's probably much more acceptance as well, as perverse or, or not as this sounds, I think there's probably a pretty decent level of acceptance almost of people who don't follow terrorism too closely, <laughs> right? Like it's it's the average person on the street gets it. Right. They get that there's people trying to kill them pretty consistently. They get that there's a problem around the kind of ideological orbit that makes people pursue those kind of, want to carry out those kind of acts of violence and they, I think they've got they've got a pretty good understanding of, of why that is, and it's not to do with some absurd, uh, you know, academic theory A of the day that you know climate change causes terrorism in northern England. You know, it's, it's, right. it, and I think most people get it. I think at, at the sadly at the academic level and within certain elements of government. The people who should have the closest grip on this uh, actually, I, I think, at times come up with some of the worst ideas. There was an idea during the rounds recently, for example. Even the term, right? Even the term Islamist terrorism. This was a very specific attempt to say, okay, this, it's a, and, and of course, there's, there's crossover, but this Islamist was a, a um, is a word with um, 
academic grounding and attempt to separate out where possible the religion versus the political ideology and understanding that this was an attempt to deal with Islamism as a as a as as it presented itself in terms of its its political goals, objectives, and nature. In the UK, we've had a recent um, intervention by a, a body connected to the British police, who have been trying to get the word Islamism scrubbed out of the UK vernacular and replaced with any sort of ridiculous alternatives, including so you'd get rid of Islamism and say. This is terrorism inspired by adherence of Osama bin Laden's ideology, or this is faith-claimed terrorism rather than Islamist terrorism. What a ridiculous conversation to still be having in 2020. This idea that that even the word, even the the use of the word Islamism is going to um, somehow, it's somehow an Islamophobic or racist act or designed to, to whip up fear or hatred of Muslims. I mean, this is, I think, I think part of it is disingenuous. I don't think a lot of, a lot of people who argue these things truly believe it. I think it just suits their political objectives. Um, and it's also, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, you, you can overuse this idea because I know this got a hell of a lot of traction around sort of late 2015 on the campaign trail about radical Islamic terrorism, the violent extremism, naming the enemy and all the rest of it. But there is something to it that you should be able to pretty easily identify who it is um, that is that is that you are that you're fighting against. And, and and Bill, I think this is what your question gets to. There's still, and I would say, even within even within the um, the non-disconnect the dots crowd, to use Tom's phrase, I think even amongst people who have a decent level of agreement on some things there's still disagreement over who exactly the enemy is. Like, is it is it the Salafi jihadists or is it the political Islamists that support? Um, is, does, it, does the Brotherhood, for example, fall into the, the kind of category of people you're actively fighting against? I, I found one of the, my takeaways, I thought, from my, the time I spent in America was that there was much less agreement on that in the States than I expected, actually. Um, and so... I think we're in bad shape on that on that front. I think we've done. I don't know. I don't have a great answer yet as to why we are in such bad shape because we've been kind of debating it for nearly two decades. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. I, it's it's amazing, and uh, you know, you hit on it something that I've noticed because it's always interesting when people ask me what I do. I meet someone randomly, and I grudgingly have to tell them because it's weird to say that you deal with terrorism right and i have a conversation with just the average person intuitively understands who our enemy is they'll they'll and they'll talk about it in depth they're sure they may have some generalizations that are either a little tilted one way or another but in in this sense they can recognize the threat the people that I would expect to have the least under least knowledge about this get it the most, and the people that I would expect to have the most knowledge about it don't, you know, have no clue. And I, I think some of that is by design. But what you're describing is exactly what we see here in the United States, and I find that to be uh, 
it's sad that uh, 19 years after 9-11, this is, we were still having this conversation that we're still lamenting this. I, th- I think this is one of the key things that, you know, Tom and I uh, constantly gripe about on this show. Uh, one of multiple things, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that, that, that we're at this point in time. And it's, it's sad to hear that in, in Europe that our, you know, our intellectual and political betters still don't have a grip on the nature of the problem. The ones that should don't. Well, I think, look, to me, one of the the key parts of this is, is that we can't, we can't concede over the language because so yeah. much of, so much of this area has been, look, I think there's an, I think there's a broader problem in, in academia, in, in, in parts of academia on this subject. I mean, first of all, too much of, too much academic writing on, terrorism and certainly on, on the areas we work in is illegible nonsense that's made excessively complicated for the sake of it or or, it, or the language is made to be excessively complicated probably um to, to obscure the lack of actual proper ideas and quality analysis so i think that we there's, there's a lot to be done i mean there's just there's just so much there's just so much to be done in the area i mean and you know the other thing is i don't want to it's easy for us, and I've, I'm guilty of this myself, of, of complaining about this and not. I, I, what I'm really interested in, and I, and I, it's why I, I rely so much on on your guys's work. Really, is, is I want to try and get past it because we've got to try and break the cycle of of um, of terrorist attack happening for a week. Maybe less, less these days, but a few days, people realizing, oh, this is serious. This stuff's still going on, and we've no real idea how to stop it. And then, you know, three weeks goes by, six weeks, two months, the world forgets about it, and you hit default, and we make the same mistakes all over again, and we have the same debates about whether we should be using Islamism or faith claim terrorism or international terrorism and all the rest of it. And it's just not going to get us anywhere. And so uh, we've got to try. I think there's a responsibility to try and do all we can to to break the cycle because obviously it's 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 destructive. Absolutely, I could not agree more. So, Robin, um, we're going to get down to some details here. So, there's been a spate of of attacks as we we've talked to, we've talked about in in Europe. Uh, can you ex- talk about a couple of these attacks? What are the prime drivers, and who is primarily responsible for these attacks? Yeah, and, and to be clear, we're talking about a spate of attacks. During uh, since the fall of the caliphate, since the territorial caliphate was was ended in two, early 2019, so that didn't end the threat entirely. Although it's been sort of small scale, you know, plots and attacks that we've that, that Robin's documented in his work, um, and then also throughout the coronavirus pandemic, there still is a a persistent sort of low level threat that's you know sort of he's documented. So maybe you can talk about how both those aspects of it, Robin, walk us through sort of what you found over the last, I don't know, I guess year and a half or so, two years. I was, I was keen to do some work and, and uh, the, the piece that will be up on the long war journal uh, is based on a, uh, a broader piece of research I did for the, the camp extremism group. I was keen to take a look um, at what the threat in Europe has looked like since the, um, since the fall of the caliphate. Um, I think Aaron Zellin at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy did something similar with Iraq and Syria. And so I thought it would be interesting to take a look at, um, at what was happening in Europe. 
And um, I think there's no doubt that the threat to Europe has changed from the days of when, when ISIS controlled all the territory in Iraq and Syria and you had all these European guys coming over to Syria, getting trained, coming back, um, exploiting the refugee routes, and then obviously foreign fighters carrying out attacks. I mean, we did. It's, it's important for us to remember because sometimes to get, to get back to a, how often did we see, I don't know whether you saw it much in the US, I saw it in Europe all the time. Before we went, the US led coalition to take down ISIS. So many times I heard people, so-called experts saying, oh, this is a major mistake. This is exactly what ISIS wants. ISIS wants a fight with the US. ISIS is trying to draw the US in. This would be a major mistake. It's just it's so many people said it, it was completely wrong. What happened was the US took away its, uh, the US and its allies, took away its territory, took away a good part of its fundraising ability, took away part of its ability to recruit, helped shut down its internet operations, killed a ton of people that were planning attacks in Europe. And this is one of the things that I think is important to draw because we know who a lot of those guys were that were planning attacks in Europe and they were taken out. The US took them out of drone strikes. The US, the UK carried out a drone strike against one of its own citizens for the first time. And the combined effect of this stuff and, and taking away ISIS's caliphate meant that the threat diminished. Now, it diminished in terms of the scale of what ISIS was able to plan in Europe. Of course, they've still got a ton of ideological adherents. Some of them are people who are lashing out domestically in Europe because they never got to make it to the caliphate in the first place. The frustrated um, traveler phenomenon. The frustrated so traveler. <laughs> yeah. The guy, the guy who carried out the attack in Vienna recently had tried to get to Afghanistan. He tried to get to Syria. He'd, he'd failed from doing so. So he, he lashed out at home. Um, so, but you tend to be seeing now more people carry out, um, not with massive networks surrounding them, people carrying out simpler. I mean, I'm not saying anything profound here. This has been well documented. This, this phenomenon of simpler attacks using vehicles and knives. That's what you see more of in Europe. And, you know, the, it means that the, the, the butcher's bill, for want of a better phrase, is, is smaller in the attacks that take place. But they are happening with, with real frequency and regularity in Europe. And, um, and just because there's been lockdowns hasn't stopped them from, from taking place. And I think it's been, in, in some ways, 2020 has been a particularly disheartening year when it comes to the Islamist threat in Europe because the caliphate has gone. I think there is a legitimate question about where the kind of next source of energy in the jihadi world is post-Syria. I don't, I don't feel like I've got a, a great answer to that question. And so in theory, you would be hoping that, that, um, that the jihadi world and those plotting attacks would be kind of like a sense of, a sense of stasis and, and, um, and not much energy behind the movement. But what you're seeing in Europe is, is that there is still a ton of energy behind it. And I would just, I would just finish by saying you are seeing a lot of um, senior officials in the UK and some senior policemen saying coronavirus is giving people chance to recruit more because people are spending more time inside, more, more time online. I tend to think this is vastly overplayed. What has really got the jihadi world animated in Europe this year is France. 
Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because we were going to go over that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's people being beheaded on the street. This is what's getting them excited. Yeah. It's Macron saying he's going to he's going to clamp down on it. I mean, this is the this is the key issue. It's not. I mean, people spending more time, like people have got access to their phones. It's not like the old days where you'd sit a dial-up modem and you can only get on your computer at home, right? Like people are online all the time. I think this this idea that coronavirus is causing terrorism is is way overblown, and I think it completely under underplays the extent to which the the real actions in France. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, sort of what's happened in France um, that that's motivated with Macron and you know, sort of French sort of attitudes on all this and events and obviously, uh, you know, Charlie Hebdo going back in time through the years, you know, public uh, publishing cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad and other sort of images, sort of uh, uh, there was you know the jihadis agitated against that. Um, and you sort of, that's still, there's still an undercurrent in what you've documented in your research. You know, Charlie Hebdo is still, you know, one of the places that, um, aspiring jihadists or aspiring terrorists want to attack even after all this time. Um, you know, one of the things that, that's, I think interesting about all this is that when you look back at the campaign against Charlie Hebdo originally, and this is something that came, that struck me when I was researching all this, Al Qaeda originally very clearly was trying to find a sort of a pretext or a justification for striking in the West, striking in France, um, sort of as portraying itself as the defenders of Islam, defenders of the Prophet Muhammad. This was a message that they hoped would resonate basically um, with the broader public. Um, and this is part of the thinking that, that went into the January 2015 attack on Charlie Hebdo's offices by the Kawachi brothers who, you know, there was a whole disconnect the dots attempt on them. Remember, you know, they weren't really AQAP, even as even as those guys, even as the brothers were saying, hey, you know, we work for Amr al-Laki and we work for AQAP and we are Al-Qaeda, even as they were literally saying that to television, you know, to, on television interviewers and, and making it very clear there was a whole attempt to play Disconnect the Dots on that. Um, but part of the reason why you're talking about what motivates people in France or motivates extremists when it comes to France, and you're absolutely right, we've watched, you know, France is the center of so many conversations right now is there's the sense that jihadis and Islamists are trying to use um, Macron and recent events in France to their own gain to basically portray themselves as sort of the vanguard or bulwark for the broader community. And talk a little bit about that and how you think that maybe fuels violence. Yeah, well, the, so the I actually just wrapped up yesterday. The um, there's, there's a trial ongoing at the moment in France with the, the broader support network to the um, Charlie Hebdo January 2015 terrorist attacks and then the Koulibaly attacks on a, um, on a uh, member of the police and the, the Jewish supermarket in the days afterwards. Charlie Hebdo decided to republish the cartoons um, around uh, earlier this year and there was a, a guy um, who took a meat cleaver to a couple of innocent civilians outside the former Charlie Hebdo offices in in Paris because he thought that's where they were still based. I mean, the reality is, of course, they they moved after the after the after the AQAP attack of January 2015. So there's this trial going on, um, which is the important context to this and the republication of the cartoons. Um, Emmanuel Macron makes a speech where he, and it's not totally new. I mean, this is, it's not only just, it's not only kind of familiar territory for Macron. It's also familiar territory for France. I mean, France is 
extraordinarily fiercely um, committed to defending secularism and free speech and obviously very obviously very obvious historical reasons and um, they more than any other European country I think are most like they, they, like there's a there's a fundamental I think the way that they're quite fundamentally similar to the US or at least the US when it's at its best in defending free speech um, and so there is a, a school teacher Samuel Patty who um, has a conversation around the Charlie Hebdo cartoons in a civics class he is taking. He gives the opportunity for Muslim students to not take part in that class if they want to, um, and because he, he makes the decision to show the cartoons. There's subsequently a real um, local community uh, agitate against this poor guy, um, try and raise awareness of what he's done and how he's he, you know, defaming Muhammad and all the rest of it. And um, somebody takes somebody takes that seriously, as they often do. And this school teacher is is beheaded on the street. We since had a, another attack where um, a knifeman went into a church in Nice, uh, killed more people, partially decapitated somebody inside that inside that church. And it's one of those areas. I mean, what you're what you're talking about here is is an attempt to impose a blasphemy law. And it's one of those, I mean, this is where I talk about bad ideas always coming back around. We, we in the West thought we'd figured out, figured out our approach to blasphemy, right? We didn't think we were going back on that one. And Islamists are absolutely determined that this is gonna be a fight they're gonna win. And so it, it's, and it's why, it's why I got so exasperated with the way the American press framed some of this. Um, and I'm thinking especially the New York Times yeah. after these terrorist attacks, because this, they were trying to present it as like, oh, this is Macron. Macron's attempt to clack, crack down on the kind of the entire Islamist ecosystem in France was sort of presented as a sop to the far right or a, a, a deliberately targeting Muslims. It's like, no, this is the fundamental stuff. These are the fundamental principles of this country and they're not going to barter away freedom freedom of speech because they're, they're not allowing the assassin's veto to come into play and there was there was obviously a hell of a discussion around this after charlie Hebdo in january 2015 and it's come back around again and it's an absolutely key point of friction and you have the risk i mean i i, I respect I don't agree with Macron on everything, but I've got to respect the fact that he is not willing to negotiate on this very key point. And I think he deserves more backing from European leaders than he's got. You're listening to Generation Jihad. Our special guest is Robin Simcox. He's the director of the counter-extremism group in the UK. Robin, uh, could not agree with you more. Ma Macron's statements on on free speech and this – the, the the New York Times uh, characterization of this was abhorrent, and um, it makes us here in the United States question our our media's commitments to v American values like free speech. But to and it's also entire it's entirely inconsistent with they're supposed to be you know left wing or liberal sort of yeah. on the political spectrum, and you know they're supposed to be you know if not free speech absolutist pretty damn close. And when you you see them 
siding like that, it really draws into, it brings into question what exactly is it they believe, you know? Uh, you know, we, we've dealt with this a lot of times on the issues that we deal with, you know, where, um, you know, I'll say this, I don't want to open this whole can of worms, but when dealing with Guantanamo, for example, right? So, um, look, there's plenty of legitimate criticisms of Guantanamo and, 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 and saying, you know, what, if you don't want to detain guys indefinitely and not identify them and everything, I, I get all that, right? I mean, there's sort of sorts of legitimate ground to sort of uh, till in that regard. Um, but I, I, it was sort of shocking to me when I first started writing about it, how often you found that um, people in the press and the media were willing to basically take the side of someone whose bona fides within Al-Qaeda, within the jihadist world, were really not in question. Um, or go out of their way to play disconnected dots on their biography from a perspective of, you know, basically blame America first, you know, blame America shouldn't be detained. Again, it does, again I'm not you know, papering over or whitewashing or accepting everything that's occurred at Guantanamo, hardly, you know, but it's just interesting how fast sort of that ideological prism is applied to stuff, issues like complicated issues like Guantanamo. It's the same dynamic, I think, in this regard, you know. Uh, Could we imagine if Nazis or members of the KKK beheaded someone for whatever reason and the New York Times came to, to their defense, essentially? I mean, it's it's absurd. That's that's the, and the, the idea that the, the the New York Times with them. I mean, if, if this kind of, I mean, let's face it. In in the U.S. press, especially in some of Europe as well, but in the U.S. press especially, there's been a hell of a lot of hyperventilating about the rise of the far right in recent yeah. years. I mean, I think it's it's whatever your views on the subject, and I think most people would concede there has been a. A rise in activity. The way it's the, the apocalyptic terms it's been presented in in parts of the U.S. press over recent years, I think, has been a. It, it's been a. Um, it's not. It's not been much of a credit to, to U.S. journalistic standards. And here you have an example of. I mean, again, it's, it's we shouldn't we shouldn't normalize to use the the fashion word of the day. Someone was beheaded on the street. Somebody went into a church and tried to behead. Yeah. This was this happened twice in a fortnight. Yeah, in France, and and the, and the attitude and the response and it's it's this infuriating way in which it's somehow seen as the kind of sophisticated or nuanced response to be like ah, but is that the real story? Isn't the story actually here about Macron's latent Islamophobia and ah? Uh, the racism of the French state and colonialism. It's like, no, the story is the beheading. The story is the beheading. It's the, it's the teacher who's just been beheaded for taking a civics class. Robin, you you have a statement on your the about page at, at the counter-extremism group. I'm just going to read it verbatim. It says, yet extremism has also become overused term in recent years, used too readily against those who simply happen to di- disagree politically. This has helped muddied the waters over what extreme- extremism truly is. This is exactly what we're talking about. When I when I read that, I just resonated. And this is what we're talking about. They're, they're trying to equate Macron coming out in defense of of, of, of what the most significant Western value of free speech. And he's being treated as a, an extremist. Um, the tables have been completely turned on issues like this. It's, this is uh, this gives us pause and it should. I mean, if I, I, I'd say, I think one of the issues here, Bill, is that there is a, 
And look, I, I, I sound like I'm I'm down on the US here. I you should be. The US fears. I, I, I love that country greatly, and I, I love living there. It's, it's, it's obviously extraordinarily, one of the most extraordinarily wonderful countries in the world. At the same time, and that's not just like a decorative bot, that is a heartfelt bot, but you've got some issues here happening with, um, I think, some some masochistic stuff happening here with your obsession with race, your willingness to inject race into every single subject. And you could see it with the reporting around Macron, where everything came through the, this, this very US-centric prism at the moment. I think every story has to be somehow brought back to race. And obviously there are, I mean, there are no one's saying that, that France doesn't have issues around race because you know, every country does to an extent have some issues around it's it's a, just a sad fact of life. Um, racism still exists in in different countries throughout the world. We all wish it didn't. Unfortunately, it does. But the fact is that the U that you guys at the moment are so extraordinarily obsessed with this issue. By the way, when you say you guys, you mean the broader public here, I, not I, us. I, totally I, not I, us here. I, I, generation John. <laughs> I, I don't mean Tom and Bill. That's for sure. I mean I think I think elements of of kind of like. U.S. political and media class, everything's due to the prism of race. And I think parts of what happened in France were too. And it was, it was a mistake. This is, uh, the example um, I'd like to use on things like this is that Charlie Hebdo attack, French Muslim policeman killed on the ground. Right. Mohamed Hamara, when he carried out his attacks in 2012, killing French soldiers. Actually, France has done a really good job in integrating not all, but I mean, France has terrible levels of segregation, I think because of the way it, it practices its approach to integration. It either works brilliantly well, where you've got French Muslims willing to fight and die for their country, or you have very severe levels of segregation for those who reject French, uh, French Republic values. Um, but it's, but it's, it's a mistake to view. These are very specific French problems. They're not U.S. problems with a French face. Robin, um, so jihadists, the three attacks you had, you had mentioned recently, right? The, the, the two, the beheading, the attempted beheading, um, and whatnot. So they've exploited, uh, Europe's immigration laws to, to enter the continent and conduct these attacks. Um, has there been any move to change the loophole, loopholes in order to prevent? It's, it's amazing. All three of these were, were, uh, it, I, I guess you could call them illegal immigrants in, in some case, in, in each case, um, that carry out these attacks. So is anything changing there? Are we seeing that is that being identified or, or no? huge topic? Um, huge topic and changes are made. So, I mean, country by country, there's a different, there's different approaches. I think even countries that have taken the most liberal attitude. Which you'd probably uh, say Germany and Sweden at the most, especially kind of during the um, the refugee and migrant waves that were coming over in 2014-15. Um, I think there is a there's a recognition that this that couldn't last forever, um, and that they would have to, and that there was a significant number of people who had no valid refugee claim to be in the country. Of course, the big problem in this is. It's not easy at all. In fact, sometimes it's impossible 
to the poor people. I mean, one of the, look, in the UK, we had this experience with Abu Qatada, right? Familiar, I'm sure, to all oh, of the... All one of, of my faves. One of your faves. I mean, this guy comes to the UK with a fake passport, um, claims asylum, obviously one of Al-Qaeda's favorite theologians, hugely influential as in this figure. Took us 13, 14 years to get rid of him. And even then, he, he went voluntarily because of some you know, broader agreement with Jordan. And he eventually ended up getting acquitted of the terrorism charges he faced there. Um, and so it's, it's really, really tricky to, even when you've got, even when countries want to, they can't always deport people. Again, just to use another example, um, the Uzbek national who carried out an attack with a truck in Sweden in April 2017, the Swedish authorities were trying to get rid of him, um, but he'd disappeared. And even if they had been able to track him down, there's no agreement with Uzbekistan that they can deport him because of human rights concerns. So people just end up staying. It's one of the most infuriating um, issues that many in that that Europe faces, that there's these national security threats they can't get rid of. The exception to this, and I've got a piece on this um, that I wrote for foreign policy a year or so ago, is Italy. Italy taking an extraordinarily hardline approach to deportations. It's it's a that country above any other in Europe does not. I mean, their their the, the willingness they go the lengths they'll go to to deport national security threats fast in Italy is very striking when you compare it to other parts of Europe. And and there are obviously some people who regard Italy as being a kind of international pariah in its willingness to deport, um, but. That, along with a few other reasons I go into in that in that piece, I think help explains why Italy has got less of a problem with jihadism than, than other parts of Western Europe. Going forward here, you know, in terms of what you expect in the coming year of 2021, um, in terms of all this, it seems like we still, you know, obviously the West, Europe, the U.S. is still trying to fight its way out of the pandemic, you know, uh, basically trying to return to some form of normalcy. Um what do you expect in terms of you know jihadism and act, that sort of activity across Europe in 2021? Um, you know, you, you rightly point out what you wrote uh, and it's been published in the Long War Journal that sort of, and this is consistent with other sources too, that you know the capability ISIS has to plot bigger attacks, you know, um, has sort of been disrupted or lessened by sort of uh, sustained counterterrorism efforts. Um, so they've been relying on smaller scale plots, obviously. That could change at any time. Um, you know, obviously, you still have Al Qaeda out there looming. It's sort of international network. Um, they haven't pulled off a big attack in some time, but there are indications they've been laying the groundwork for possible plots. Um, you know, do you, do you expect sort of to see this sort of uh, the same pattern of these sort of small scale attacks that continue throughout 2021? Do you think it's going to get worse? Do you think it's going to get better? What do you think? I always, by the way, I hate asking questions like this because people ask me questions like this and I'm like, what the hell, how the hell do I know the answer, right? You know, so now I'm asking you a question I don't like when people ask me, but that's what we do here. You know, this is all, you know, so. So obviously, obviously your answer is speculative and I, that's, we're okay with speculation on this podcast, just so you know. So informed, spe- informed speculation, you know. Look, my informed speculation would be that it's not going to get any better next year because um, if the jihadis were able to hit with a decent level of regularity at a time when, Europe locked up half its population, essentially, forced them to stay indoors. Um, and there was still the desire and the capacity and the ability to carry out attacks. I don't know why that would change 
in 2021 as opposed to 2020. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm pessimistic on that front. I don't see any reason similarly why there'd be an enormous optic barring some uh, international kind of geostrategic issue that could be exploited by jihadis in the way that Syria was that, that right now is just tough, tough to foresee. I suppose the, the one thing... Well, if you listen to this podcast, though, Robin, I think we got some ideas on something on the jihadi world that could possibly be bubbling over in terms of South Asia in particular with, you know, Af- you know Afghanistan. I mean, the, the, the thing know. I was about to say, that the, the, yeah. <laughs> the ace in the pack or the joker in the pack would be Afghanistan. Yeah. If, that, if, if, if that's really screwed up as badly as it appears to be on the path of being screwed up, oh, it is. Um, yeah. Afghanistan would be my concern which i mean how how depressing a thought is that that in 2021 20 years on the primary counterterrorism concern when it comes to overseas plotting in the homeland could be coming out of afghanistan i mean doesn't that kind of like perfectly sums up just how much we've screwed this up over the last couple of decades you just think about it if the u.s does leave in may of 2021 what, ha- what would happen if Ayman al-Zawahiri popped his head up in Kandahar City or Nangahar on, say, September 11th, 2021? Wouldn't that be ironic? be worse than ironic. I think it would be, uh, you know, quite depressing, you know, sort of that yeah. he survived all this. And, you know, obviously there are rumors of his death, which are unconfirmed still. And, you know, we don't see any indication that's true as of this time. Uh, but, you know, the, the bottom line is, I mean, I... You know, it's one of the things we talk about on on this podcast quite a bit is that you know you have that you have that situation in Afghanistan and spillover into Pakistan and the problems there. We have Africa. Africa is a, a bubbling scene. You know, it's sort of you know it's one of those areas where I've certainly not been keen to get the U.S. further involved in Africa. But by the same token, there are some minimal commitments the U.S. has made that seem to have helped in keeping at at, at least keep the jihadis at bay. Which now apparently they're coming to an end as well, including in Somalia where the U.S. is pulling back. About 700 troops that, you know, Shabab, we just, just in the last, you know, a couple of days before recording this, although it'll be probably a week or two before we release the podcast, you know, the Department of Justice announced charges against the Shabab operative for planning a 9-11 style operation. Um, you know, there was on the disconnected the dots scene, there was all sorts of disconnected dots on Shabab through the years as well. Um, you know, trying to pretend like that isn't really part of Al Qaeda. But, you know, the jihadis are waging this insurgency in all these different countries. Um, and, you know, I, I still think that the, the, the prospect of that spilling over again into the West is, uh, you know, not insignificant. Uh, you know, I think there's a significant chance of that happening once again. And then, you know, sort of what the reaction is to that, you know, depending on where the attack takes place or if, if it's successful. I mean, obviously, you have a big plot that's thwarted, which has happened a lot of times. And that seems to have, you know, obviously less of an impact for good reasons. Um, but you know, I, I don't know. I, I just think going forward, I think, you know, what's depressing about this conversation for me is that we're talking to Robin Simcox here of the counter extremism group in the UK is that there's just still no real agreement on the fundamentals and all this. Right. I mean, that, that's the problem. We're, we're entering 2021, you know, it's going to be 20 years since nine 11. And it seems like fundamental stuff that should be agreed on, whether you're on the left or right of the political spectrum, there should be an agreement when it comes to terrorists and the, the ideology that motivates terrorists who do not, you know, have any sympathy for you, whether or not you are a member of the Labor Party or, you know, you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or you're a conservative. Doesn't doesn't matter. Like these, you know, the jihadis don't don't care. They hate all of you. They hate all of us. And yet it just seems to me that we're still in a situation where there's still broad disagreement on some of the fundamentals on this. Oh, and, and one of the one of the things that 
we maybe for a while did have some form of agreement on, although I, maybe I'm maybe I'm looking back on this with with nostalgic eyes that don't that it doesn't deserve. That was this idea that um, ungoverned spaces overseas where jihadis could train and operate was bad news for us generally. I mean, obviously, 9-11 being the the, the genesis of, of this, really. But a um, long time, there was a kind of consensus across, I think, I think a decent amount of bipartisan consensus that um, the terrorist groups being able to acquire territory, train there and plot there was going to have very, very stark and severe consequences for us here in the West. And, and Tom, you're talking about whether any of these... Um, these kind of simmering conflicts could could bubble over and and um, impact the West. I guess the question is, I mean, I can't really think of many good reasons why they wouldn't, because they have so often in the past. And so we'd be really, there's not many excuses left, I would say, for our policymakers at this point to really be able to turn around the next time serious attack happens and be able to say, well, we didn't, we just didn't see it coming, because we should. You know, in, in the U.S., I mean, this is something we talk about a lot, and I don't want to – I won't get off on a whole tangent here once again. But this is this is fundamentally the problem I have with the endless wars rhetoric, right, is it's a sort of a blame America first sort of perspective as if people like Bill and myself want the U.S. to be in Afghanistan, right? Why in the world would I want U.S. military forces in Afghanistan? I don't have any interest in having the U.S. military anywhere, right? Um, it's just begrudgingly and with a lot of reservations and often ambivalence and often criticism and skepticism. You know, you can see the value in keeping a small presence in different areas to keep prevent the sort of the worst case scenario from happening. You know, I don't think any time in the history of warfare, it's been a good thing for your enemies. And yes, they are enemies to capture ground, to capture territory. I don't know. I can't think of a good time, you know, when that's been a good situation, whether or not it leads to another something as big as 9-11 or not. It seems to me that there are all sorts of, sec- you know, first, second, third order consequences from that. And you're talking about a situation now with the endless wars rhetoric in the U.S. where effectively what people are saying is, um, I don't care if the Taliban and Al-Qaeda sack Kabul. I don't care if Shabab, which is a branch of Al-Qaeda, sacks Mogadishu. I don't care if Al-Qaeda or ISIS gains ground and forms a- an emirate in West Africa. I don't care if AQAB comes roaring back in Yemen and captures ground once again, just as they've done twice in the past. I don't care if ISIS maintains its low level uncertainty and maybe perhaps grabs, grabs some more territory once again in Syria and Iraq. Doesn't mean that I want the U.S. to be there to to fight all those um, insurgencies or the jihadis, but I think you can a reasonable person can say it's not it's not a good story if they make ground in those areas if they gain ground in those areas. Yeah, and, and they should be. Look, I mean, if if people, if 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 the endless walls crowd think that um, America shouldn't be in any of these places and that it needs to uh, retreat and focus solely on domestic politics or focus on on pivot to Asia or um, focus more on the pandemic, all these things, you, that's that's their view. They should also be aware there are very severe consequences. There are going to be very severe consequences for the people living in those countries. There's going to be very severe consequences for the shot in the arm terrorist groups will get. And there'll be very severe consequences for the safety and livelihood of us here in the West sooner or later as well. So it's, it's, it's a choice of people. It's, it's, it's what people can't do is pretend that you can withdraw all U.S. military and intelligence apparatus from 
countries with virulent terrorist movements that want to attack the West and then say there's going to be no consequences of it or, or we'll be just as safe as we were before. It's obviously not. Amen, Robin. I mean, that is the biggest complaint, Tom and Hot. Well, one of many complaints that we have. But, you know, that's exactly it. I mean, fine. You want to end the endless wars? Admit what you're going to leave behind. Make the case to the American public. But what we see instead is we see excuse making. Oh, we'll have peace with the Taliban. Oh, Al Qaeda is down to one senior uh, ideologue and he's trapped in Afghanistan, Pakistan. Uh, Oh, this group, Shabab, is really not part of Al Qaeda. It's just some local insurgency branch. All these stupid arguments. And and that that really is our our big gripe. Go ahead. Withdraw from the wars. The wars aren't going to end. Jihadists are going to continue to fight, as Tom uh, perfectly coined. It's an endless jihad, and um, you know, just be, let's just be let's have an honest discussion about this. And instead, all we get is lies and deceit. I mean, dare I be so blunt? But that's who I am. Well, that's a cheery note here for the final episode of the podcast here in, in, in twenty. <laughs> As always, but Robin. Uh, th- yeah, happy New Year! But thanks for joining us, Robin. We're gonna have you on the show again in twenty twenty one because these issues won't go away. Obviously, when we're talking about all this. I mean, you know, we're. You know, this is going to be an issue post-pandemic, during the pandemic, whatever. It's going to be an issue ongoing. There's going to be, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be a terrorist, a jihadist threat that we're going to have to concern ourselves with. There's going to be the Islamist problem, which is ongoing, uh, which, you know, we're in the same camp that we don't think that Islamism is a an appropriate bulwark against jihadism or overt violence. Um, but thanks, Robin, for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Bill, Tom, great to speak to you um, and uh, happy to come back anytime. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Robin. Happy New Year. Best wishes to you and all of our listeners uh, in this new year. You too, guys. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show once again. Um, as always, you can find us on any of the different places you listen to your podcasts, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else. Um, we really do appreciate your support throughout 2020. This is very much a project that Bill and I sort of started as an experiment. Uh, no, we don't really know what we're doing, but we're kind of faking it as we go through this. So uh, thank you for listening to us as we fake it along. 